Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. Morning, James. Morning, Al. How are you? What's What, what news from, from Chiswick? <laughs> um, well, the news from Chiswick is I have my copy of Bugle and Sabre, um, which is the uh, military history of the Oxfordshire and um, Oxfordshire Buckinghamshire, sent to me by um, a contributor to that magazine. Um, uh, by the same of... colonel. It's a colonel, yes. Uh, the colonel has sent me... There's a thing about T-Force for me to oh, read. Yes. There's also the Bucks Yeomanry at Kohima. Um, uh, yeah. The Royal Buckinghamshire Yeomanry in, in, in Burma, um, who were uh, at, at Kohima, I think. No, that would definitely pique my interest, I've got to say. Yeah, well, it's a, just a couple of pages with some interesting some interesting maps, actually. Yeah, always who good. Was on what, who was on what ridge. Um, uh, and then with, a, I think, a six-pounder. Um, and the picture of, I mean... The picture of Garrison Hill after the battle. Yeah, 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 I know. It's just I mean, like, but you, do you know what? I think that's a still from an uh, from, from some film footage actually. Um, yeah, and yeah. you can. Um, I mean, fair to say, it's changed a lot since then. Um, well, yes, there's, 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 there, there it is. There's, there's the. Yeah, yeah, but but also what what those trees around it don't really sort of don't really give the impression of the kind of sort of quarter of a million people living in and around um, Kahima yeah. now when when there used to be kind of sort of you know half a dozen Naga tribesmen and feed goats. Um, yeah, and, and yeah. that was literally it. So it's it it is completely transformed. But you definitely get the flavour of it. I think the the, the thing is, it's all around there, you're surrounded by that kind of jungle, so you get exactly what the landscape is. It's all you know. Those rolling hills go all the way down to Shanchak, which we talked about before, and and yeah. pretty much all the way down. It's, it gets more kind of sort of plainy and kind of open um, the further south you go. But yeah. but all around there, there's hills everywhere, and they're all covered in trees and and you know and gum trees and, and and what have you. And it's very very atmospheric. It's very clear to get a kind of very clear taste of what it was like in that environment. Yeah. Um. Sort of geographically and in terms of kind of flora and fauna and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, and it's interesting. And I've just say you've just held it up, and it looks uh, it looks for for a kind of you know a comparatively local regiment. Uh, um. Quarterly well, they got, journal. It looks pretty glossy and, and lush. Well, yes, and that, and the, the thing you realise, of course, is they got around the, the oxen bucks. Yeah, I mean, they the, just? The, the, I mean, this is the thing: is is it's is and and their their remit isn't just the Second World War in this magazine, but they they you know there's there's stuff about the um uh uh you know I can't what what do we call the Indian mutiny nowadays? It's the Indian rebellion, isn't it? We don't call it mutiny anymore. Um, oh, do we not? Uh, no, no, no. Salonica. Um, uh, the siege at Kut um, in the First World War, um, all sorts of stuff. Oh, siege um, at Kut, that's amazing. That's an amazing yeah, yeah. episode. Uh, well, I once, the, I once the... worked up an idea for a novel based around that. Really? Townsend of Kut. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was, it was. I quite, I quite liked it. And I remember, I remember having a conversation with Ruth Rendell, um, who I knew quite well, uh, and saying <laughs> to her, "I was just can't, Ruth, you know, can't, I just had this flash of inspiration to do this novel about the siege of Kut." And I remember we spent a whole kind of car journey down to Weymouth. From London 
talking about it by the end of it. Really? You know, I'd, I'd written, you know, I'd written the whole thing in my mind. Of course, you know, here we are, kind of twenty five years on, done absolutely nothing about it. But it is a, it is, <laughs> it is an amazing story. I mean, it's it's so bleak. And Townsend really was, you know, class A, SH one T. Oh yeah, yes. Not not a. I mean, that's for another, that's for another time. Anyway, so yes, so that's my copy of Bugle and Saber, and the T Force stuff is very interesting because T Force was was basically um, uh, and uh, the, the the Bucks were attached to the was sort of provided the the manpower for this. T Force was a, a crew who were going around looking for technology um, in the in the Third Reich at the end of the war um, and they had a safe cracker with them and all this sort of stuff and the big idea was they'd go they'd go I mean they got to Krups and there's the photograph of them with Krups with the looking at these um, experimental tank hulls that um, Krups were looking and that was the idea is they'd get their hands on this tech uh, uh, but but it and it's I think it, I think there's an Ian Fleming connection maybe yeah, possibly maybe. I'm not sure bit of spooky stuff but it but but basically they're nowhere near as thrilling or as interesting as they as they uh, as they are on paper, T Force. It's all a bit. No, it's all a bit. You know, that's so funny because I remember, and this must be this must be two thousand and one or two, and yeah. actually Roland White and I, um, we were we were both working together at the same time in the same place at the time, and he said, "I've just got been contacted by this guy who used to be in T Force, and and he wants to meet us, and you know, we can go and interview him, and it sounds absolutely fantastic. You know, what, can you imagine it? We're kind of capturing all this Nazi tech at the end of the war. You know, what's not to like? So we 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 took a day off work, and we we drove up in his in his in his company car, Volkswagen Golf. Yeah, and we went went up to Norfolk to see this guy. He was a veteran of T Force, and it took flipping forever. I mean, it just took forever to get our way out of London. You know, get up through, you know, yeah. what's that road that goes through sort of Chelmsford and stuff. Eventually get up to Norfolk. And anyway, we finally got there. And it was literally the worst veteran interview I've ever, ever done. <laughs> His wife did a fantastic line in cakes, which is brilliant. So we didn't go home hungry. And they were incredibly <laughs> hospitable and very sweet. But it was but. literally... Honestly, and I remember it was it was you know we we had it, we were talking to him in his front room and it was incredibly warm and hermetically sealed, and I remember literally nodding off and really struggling having to come sort of stab myself in the thigh, <laughs> and it was just you know get me out of here quickly. It was awful, and he just did absolutely nothing. It was a complete non-story. Duh. But I'm sure oh, the well. article in Bugle and Post is brilliant. The Bugle and Sabre. I mean, Bugle, Sabre Bugle and Sabre, sorry. Oh, uh, and there's an article about Whitney Aerodrome, if anyone's interested as well. Anyway, yeah, well, there's, um, a, there's a lot to say for in this, this, there's a lot to say for this, this quarter's edition. <laughs> um, right, now we have, we have, we've had various questions that um, I thought we'd, um, we'd try and uh, uh, wriggle our way through um, uh, for this week's edition. Yeah, I um, just thought, before we do that, I, do, I did want to yeah. just sort of, you know, final follow-up on our narrative of training. Yes, yes, please, yes, 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 yes. Because well, after all, well, no, because after all, one of the chats we did last week that's going to come up, um, uh, uh, w- w- th- that we did, and I don't want to get too far into it. Um, we, 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 we talked to um, uh, uh, Waitman Wade Bourne last week. Who's oh, a, yes, who's yes, well, he was fascinating, wasn't he? He was fascinating, and that will be coming up at some point uh, on a Thursday. Um, and... Uh, what Waitman's looked into is the Wehrmacht and the Holocaust, and uh, because after all, it wasn't just the SS, um, and, and the, uh, in particular, the portion of the Holocaust that is the Holocaust of uh, you know b- by the bullet, which is 
um, German units going to towns, uh, rounding Jews up and murdering them. And the Wehrmacht were up to their necks in this completely. And we talked to Waitman about that. And we talked about motivations and, and the patterns of motivation. And he, I don't want to get too far into it because it's such a fascinating podcast. I don't want, you know, I don't want to offer spoilers. But he talks about basically opportunity and motivation and how it was mainly a question of opportunity rather than motivation. Um, the, the Wehrmacht being involved in this stuff. But that made me reflect on a lot of we'd been ta- what have we been talking about the week before with training. And the fact that you are one of the questions, you can, you, can, you can have whatever you like in a training manual. But it's motivating, actually motivating the men is the, is the tricky bit, is the bit that makes the manual worthless or worthwhile, would, yep. wouldn't you say? Yes. And, and so, but talking to Waitman about motivation... And opportunity, you start to think, oh, or motive and opportunity. You start to think, well, gosh, you know, because 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 after all, a thing we talk about, a thing we, we we talked about a lot last time in regards to this training thing is that why are Nazis fighting? Why are German soldiers fighting a last ditch effort in forty four forty five when the war is clearly lost? What's motivating them? And we talked a lot about it being. A political, the political motivation surrounding them, the levers that the that, that, that their officers have at their disposal, the, the Nazi state has at its disposal, at its disposal to keep people doing what they want them to do, um, i.e., shooting them or, mm-hmm. or whatever else. But but curiously, a lot of that didn't feature in what we were talking to Whiteman about last week. So I've been, I want people to hear it because it's really it it it, it, it really swimming, got, it? it's really sat with me and also immediately reflected on the things we that we talked about last week with training so it's good that it's really good that we've come back come back to this because my mind my mind has been a broil since we spoke to Waitman I'll be honest with you yeah no me too and 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 it's sort of it it sort of also completely underlines just how completely ghastly and horrific and awful it was and we we're kind of sort of determined aren't we to get get either Waitman on or, or someone else on to talk about this kind of sort of fetishization of kind of of terms of why people would want to dress up as yeah. Waffen SS and all of that. Yeah. Because yeah, let's yeah. face it, it's weird. It's really, yeah. really odd. And there's no yeah. getting around it. Uh, um, and, and it sort of goes beyond a kind of a, a, an interest in human drama and an interest in the whys and wherefores, which is, you know, I think it's fair to say what kind of draws you and I in now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but but very close to, to training, you know, and the whole reason we're having this conversation about training is is about this kind of sort of idea that that... You know, German soldier is man for man worth more than kind of yeah for Allied troops or whatever it is. Whether you're kind of going back to back to Slam Marshall or Martin van yep. Creveld or just this sort of persistent idea that yes, the Allies have got more kit, um, the Russians have got more kit, um, yeah. uh, um, uh, uh, but the Germans, beleaguered though they were, uh, were just better trained better equipped they just they didn't have yeah. enough of it and that was the big yeah. problem and if you ever want to yeah. check just think about the the jerry with his mg team and michael yeah, Whitman yeah. and his tank blah 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah, you yeah. know the, and and as you and i kind of sort of feel very strongly th- there's a whole host of flaws in that um yeah uh, multiple flaws in it but but it's very interesting when suddenly you come across accounts uh, written um down pretty much at the time which question this kind of Germans are brilliant tactically kind of orthodoxy that that had sort of crept in and which now at long last I think has sort of slightly been kicked into touch and obviously you know I'm doing this I'm, I'm absolutely embroiled at the moment in doing my Sherwood Rangers book and, yeah. and one of the guys I've been um, I've got to know 
uh, albeit remotely, is Gavin Soleri. And Gavin Soleri is a poet. And his father was Peter Soleri, who is one of the great characters of the Sherwood Rangers. He's, his grandfather was an Italian. Um, his, par- his grandfather and his father were both in the kind of restaurant and wine business and owned pubs. Um, yeah. And he was very well educated and had a great love of history, was incredibly well read, could recite vast numbers of poems, particularly yeah. martial ones, um, like after Blenheim and kind of, you know, Charge of the Light Brigade, you know, off Pat. And all that that history and that knowledge and that love of literature kind of sort of pervades everything that he's experiencing in Normandy. So you know when the you know when the um, the commander of the LCT flotilla that they're in says, actually, we're not going to kind of drop you at seven thousand yards. We're going to bring you in as close as we possibly can. Yeah. You know yeah. he notes in his diary, you know, a nice Nelsonian touch. You know, and that's kind of. That's the kind of bloke he is. But anyway, in in this, <laughs> he, he's written this kind of account of of his experiences, and they're 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 funny and informative and moving all at the same time. But there's this line where he it, where he's talking about just going into action on point one hundred three, which is overlooking Tilly Cecil. So we're talking about kind of you know from the eighth of June for the next kind of sort of ten days, two weeks, and he writes, "It is interesting to note that the British tactical handling of artillery." had evolved in a superior way to that of the Germans, who were great lovers of little packets of various arms called battle groups, but which led to fragmentation. Really? And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because he's writing that that before that whole kind of sort of 1960s, 70s, 80s kind of... Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, this is the. I mean, funnily enough, my um, after this talk last week, my daughter Scarlett wrote to me because she does listen to the podcast, and she said, "So you you were talking about how often people actually shot intentionally. I was wondering if certain nationalities were more likely to intentionally shoot at each other. E.g., Germans were were the Germans more likely to shoot at the Russians than they were at the British, and then were the non-German members of the German army less inclined to be violent than their German counterparts? Right." She asked that, and I think that's an interesting question. But oh, I, it is. my feeling, but my feeling is that the issues around lethality in combat aren't to do with the people on the ground necessarily. It's to do with weapons and weapon systems. Weapons and weapon systems are the thing that thing. That, I mean, this is the answer I gave her. Weapons and weapon systems are the things that kill soldiers rather than soldiers. If you see what I mean, right? Yeah. We we talk a lot about luck. Um, uh, we've I mean, we've talked a lot about luck on this podcast, don't we? You know that that, that someone's lucky and then the luck runs out, uh, and that's because a weapon system has de- been deployed that they have absolutely no control over. How, no matter how good a soldier you are tactically, if you're in a field running across the middle of a field using the cover available to you as skillfully as you possibly can, and someone somewhere else that you don't know about decides to stonk that field, there is nothing you could you could be the best soldier tactically in the world, the most violent, aggressive dedicated soldier in the world there's nothing you can do about that if it suddenly fills with um medium uh, shells you, you know or, or or 25 pounder shells so i said when i mean and, and when you analyze casualty rates in northwest europe it's mortifier after all light mobile indirect artillery that's causing the most ca- ca- casualties followed by artillery right yeah. Although artillery is fairly ineffective against men who are well dug in. Both are ineffective. So it's when you're on the move that you're vulnerable, isn't it? Yeah. So you can't say that the, be- the soldiers are the-, the best soldiers tactically, the ones who sit still and do nothing to avoid being shelled. 
because then they can't gain ground, they can't achieve anything, they can't counterattack. But also, right? they can't, you know, the, from the German point of view, if you're, if you know, you've got the British attacking towards you on Operation Epsom, um, yeah. and you're stuck, dug in. That's great, but at some point you've got to. The whole point is that you've got to push them back again, because otherwise they're going to yeah. gain ground, and they're going to be they're going to be right upon you, and you can't sustain that. It, yeah, you yeah, can't yeah, sustain yeah, that yeah. defensively yeah. if the yeah. Tommies are kind of only yeah. twenty yards but, away. But it, so you've but got leads... to you've got to do something and get up out of your foxhole and, and, and counterattack. But that exactly the moment you do, exactly. you're then exposed to exactly the same dangers, except exactly. worse exactly. than the British when they're attacking you, because the the, the Allies have got more firepower. And the paradox, of course, is riflemen don't kill very many people, but suffer the most casualties. Of course. So if you're, so if you're a rifleman, and you, and, 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 but until you've got a rifleman to the top of that hill... You haven't got it. What, you haven't got it, because what the riflemen are sort of there to do, in a way, is provide a screen so you can move your guns up and do the next thing. But at some point, they have to, the riflemen have to do the move in the open, break cover, do the difficult bit... And 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 put themselves in the way of lethality, of course. Yes. So so in a way, in a way, it's kind of irrelevant how how aggressive you are or how violent you might be, because after all, something di- unconnected with your aggression and your personal ability to violence or even your discipline is going to happen. Someone in an OP is going to decide. It's going to you know. Uh, and after all, a thing the British becoming. I mean, we talk a lot and there's a lot of talk about German tactical flexibility. One thing you can rely on the Germans to do is counterattack. They will always counterattack. Yeah. And in that sense, they're tactically inflexible. And the Allies go, well, half an hour from now, they're going to form up. There's only one place they can counterattack from. And so they plaster it. And it's like the same thing happens at, I mean, it's writ large at Kohima where the Japanese literally form up in the same place at the same time. Uh, and the same at the admin box, where they go down that same dried-up gully every over and four times in a row. Four, and, the, yeah, and the West yeah, Yorkshire's yeah. just hammer them every single time. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so and, and you can't deny that the Japanese soldier is more aggressive in his prosecution of, the, of, of battle, can you, really? I, I think I think it's it, I think that's a that's a fair but, but, thing. But, another, but, but, a, but, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how aggressive he is because <laughs> no. what he's doing doesn't work. And yeah. so and so, so to get hung up on this idea that of the of the steely motivated German soldier, who's and that makes him a better soldier than the the less motivated British soldier. It just you, you, you you're bringing things in to the to the dissection of. What of effectiveness in battle that, that maybe don't have any bearing on their effectiveness in battle. You yeah. know, an integrated we- weapon system that uses artillery effective effectively is going to make more of a difference than whether your guys are whether your guys are pepped for going over the top. Yes, absolutely. And, and this whole thing about kind of sort of you know a, a, a German soldier can last for four days and what an American soldier would expect to have it, have in one, you know. Great, you know, but that, that's, so what? I mean, that just all that does is just belie the fact that the Germans are are impoverished. Um, yeah, y- y- you know, it's not a crime for having more riches than the, than your enemy, um, and no. and and that makes you better. I mean, the, the fact that the German, the Americans can supply their frontline troops with Coca Cola, um, and Camel cigarettes, and and coffee, and and the best medical supplies in the entire world, good. I mean, that's a good yeah. thing. Why, why is that yeah. a bad thing? Why should that be held up against a, you know the German who can who can stick out for four four days longer? I mean, you know, 
That's that's a, an absurd line of argument. But the other big thing is, is uh, oh yes, but 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 the Germans are tactically flexible because they can create battle groups. And, uh, and as I've said before, you know that is a that is a side effect of the freedom of material poverty. You know, if you haven't got much, you haven't got to organise much, which means it's much yeah, easier yeah. to organise it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but it's very interesting. Again, you know, part of my kind of Sherwood Rangers um, research, I've been going back over Stanley Christopherson's diaries, uh, and he's talking about here, he's talking about the next day, 29th of August, we advanced, uh, the advance continued to Amiens. And he said... We had now moved into open and rolling countryside and were able once again to adopt the old desert formation. One squadron in open formation in the lead, regiment headquarters following close behind and a squadron on either flank. We worked now as an armoured regimental group, being supported by our battery of guns from the Essex Yeomanry under Chris Sidrick and a company of motorised infantry from the 1260th under Derek Coles. If that isn't a Kampfgruber, I don't know what is. <laughs> That's a battle group. That is what a battle group is. And there they yeah. are. And what's amazing is they disband it within 36 hours. So they do yeah, it. They, what, they, they form it up on the day for an operation. They achieve that operation. They get across the whatever it is, the Somme. Um, and then they um, and, and then Don't they need it, it anymore. So get rid yeah, of it. So they disband and, 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 you know, is that not tactical flexibility? And I remind you that that is of a yeomanry regiment from the TA. Yeah. Well, there we are. Not okay. a Panzer well, elite. Should, no, not a Panzer elite. Um, not not one amongst them. Well, should we? You know. Should we? Should we? Um, uh, should we answer some questions now? Yes, or we should. should. Oh, no, we I'll, actually, tell what, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take a very, very, very swift break, and then we'll be back with some questions. How about that, James? Yeah, perfect. Okay, uh, we're going to take a very, very swift break, and then we'll be back with some of your questions. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk after that swift break. Um, uh, Very swift James break. Hunt. And actually, Jay- we only did 21 minutes of detour. Yeah, I know. I know. That's not bad, actually. It's normally bad. it's double that. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I wrote my answer to Scarlett's question on Facebook, she said, thanks for the essay reply when she'd asked that. <laughs> <laughs> That's slightly withering. Well, well, it's like you did ask, and it is complicated. Um, <laughs> right. Um, uh so, we have some questions. Howard Henderson says, Guten Tag, meinen Freunden. Um, uh, Guten Tag, Howard. I have a quandary <laughs> in regards to Rudolf Hess. And I'd like oh to preface this with, in capitals, I'm not a Hess apologist. It's in regard to his post-war treatment as opposed to other Nazis. While his guilt is without question, I look at his life se- sentence as odd in comparison with the treatment of, say, Speer, von Braun and countless others. Hess was an architect of the Third Reich and a huge part of the anti-Jewish laws and all the rest of it and deserves his sentence or even worse. But after he goes batshit and goes off to Scotland, he misses out on all the juicy action of the war and the war crimes. Meanwhile, Speer and von Braun are actually complicit in latter stages of the Holocaust. Now, while von Braun was so valuable and Speer tactically squirmed his way out, we were also importing some greasy Nazi characters to help us fight the Cold War. Hess strikes me as an oddball, and I wonder whether the latter part of his sentence should have been spent in a mental asylum. What are your thoughts? Again, I am not a Hess apologist. No, Where's perish Howard the thought, Howard. Perish the thought. No, no, um, no. Um, well. well, what do you think, Jim? <laughs> 
Well, I mean, he was kept in Spandau all that time, basically because of the Russians, wasn't it? It was the Soviets who wanted yeah. to keep him in all that time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speer absolutely 100% got away with it. I mean, completely. He was absolutely up to his neck in it. How he got off at Nuremberg, I have no idea, really. Um, yeah. He finally had a heart attack in in a London hotel, didn't he? Having a having a bit of how's your father with a with a someone with a girlfriend, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's that really frustrating thing that the BBC interviewed him, didn't they? The day he died in the day, yeah, and they've lost yeah. it. They've lost it it's somewhere in their archive well, in Croydon or something. But anyway, well, but, but but you know, um, Hess. No, Hess. Well, you, no, don't, you know, don't feel sorry for Hess at all. Uh, um, you know, he's absolutely. He's also up to his neck in it. Don't forget, it's 1941 where he goes out. Where they've already gone in and uh, committed appalling things in Poland, um, yeah. and, and done terrible things, and they've already kind of sort of started to map out the Holocaust. And you know, I and know, they're gearing, I know they haven't for, yet, they're, but they're gearing up for it. They're gearing they're up gearing, for kind of, well, they're gearing up for another war of aggression. You know, yeah. um, uh, they've already uh, been just. You know, they've already got. We've gone past the moat where the point where uh, um, Hitler tells everyone that you know this is going to be an ideological war and you know take no prisoners and kill everyone. So yeah. he knows he's he knows all about that, and you know he is one of the most ideological Nazis there are. You know, him and Rosenberg and all the rest of it. They're the true believers who uh, were in the... Um, yes, yeah, a fuel uh, yeah. guy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's right from the, word, from the word go and he believes all that kind of sort of, you know, wacky nonsense. The Racial stuff. destiny and all that all stuff. That, uh, all that yeah, crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I have no sympathy for Rudolf Hess whatsoever. Um, um, <laughs> I mean, in a way, I mean, I mean, his treatment is odd. In com- his life sentence is odd in comparison with Speer. That yes. is, I, I don't think you could. I don't think you can argue with that. I mean, I I think Hess was lucky to escape the gallows. Actually, as one of the, as one of the architects of the Third Reich, as one of the people who, you know, but by being so involved in the movement right from the world word go, Hitler's right hand man, you know, and and Hess after all was a was a was a he was a pilot, wasn't he? So he was um that was his thing, wasn't it? He was sort of part of the groovy yeah. airman thing from the twenties and thirties. Yeah. That the Goering that Goering's a part of. So he's cut from he's cut from similar cloth to some of the other really close up Nazi people, isn't he? Yeah. So and he was and he was part of the Deutsche Ar, you know, Arbeitsparty, uh um, you know, the German Workers' Party before it became the National Socialist German Workers' Party. And and, yeah. and I think he was in the Tula Society as well, wasn't he? You know, yes, yeah, so no, he was yes, he was in the Tula. He was in the Tula. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah. tell you what though, um you know who was Commandant of Spandau at one point? No, who? It was Ronnie Spears. Really? You fellas want to smoke? Really? Uh no thank you, Lieutenant. Yeah, from Band of Brothers. Really? Yeah, yeah. He wow. Ended up, he ended up being commandant of of Spandau. That's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. That's extraordinary. Not only can he I mean, run the... across open fields and mow down the village of Foy, <laughs> he can also I mean, the, be commandant um, of, of Hess. The um uh the, the conspiracy theories around Hess are sort of um are all quite are all quite bonkers. Well, they're just there's just none of them work. No, I mean the idea the the idea that Hitler sent him doesn't doesn't uh, plug in at all to the fact that Hitler basically chewed the carpet and went bonkers when he found out about it. You know, um, the, 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 none of it, none of it adds up. The idea that it, it wasn't, it was a double. It wasn't, and because they, because that's where these conspiracy theories they always inevitably end up. It's just a double. He was swapped out for someone else, and you think, well, how did his family not notice that? Yeah. I mean, come on, don't be so, don't be so bloody stupid. I mean, it. It is. I mean, it is a really interesting thing that he tries to do, but also just shows. It's. I always think that the the, the signature of the of Hess flying to the to the UK is that he doesn't know anyone at all in in British <laughs> it's, politics. It's he doesn't so know, bad. 
He doesn't know anything about British politics at all. He no. has no idea who anyone is, who's connected to whom and how. Which is, and a, yet, which incidentally is a feature of most leading Nazis. Well, exactly. Which is half exactly. the problem. Which is half the problem is they don't know anything about the outside world. You know, they've just they've just made it's it all up. The they go, oh, race, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah. And oh. I reckon I reckon if I go see them, they'll see sense. Was you know, you, you yeah, think, we are reasonable people. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we are Northern Europeans. You know, we are the same. <laughs> yeah, they will. If they leave Europe to us, we will give them the empire. All that, right? It's and and the fact that I mean, it's really interesting how he how he does it. And he was obviously a good pilot. And all this sort of stuff, a skilled pilot and learns how to fly the one uh, the, the 110 and gets himself gets himself there and all this sort of stuff. But I mean, beyond that, it's just that it's sheer harebrained. And in that sense, he is he is a Nazi through and through because he's it's harebrained. It doesn't stand. Yes, up it's also it's, 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 it's also that that um, I mean, he is harebrained, but but. The rumor is that he's not the sharpest tool in the shed as well. Yeah, and yeah. and that he's 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 not quite as sort of out and out Machiavellian as some of the other people that are kind of sort of pushing yeah. in there. So the Goebbels yeah. and the Himmlers, yeah, and particularly in his case, Bormann, because he is yeah. Bormann is his his num- his secretary, and then is starting to sort of unveil his way in towards uh, yeah, yeah, uh, towards yeah. Hitler and sort of superseding him. And Hess realizes that he's becoming a redundant. And that he has yeah. no real role, and he's losing out on this, and and he is heartbroken and ideologically torn by the fact that that his influence within Hitler's inner circle is kind of is is on the wane. So this is a desperate, this is an attention-getting plea. This yeah. is this is this is a kind of. But but I love you, Mein Führer. I'm going to yeah. do this last desperate thing as a kind of sacrifice for you. And then you know what he hopes is that either he'll kind of sort of you know it'll it'll, it'll be disastrous and. You know, in which case he's sort of he's done, he's out of it all, or 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 it's a complete success, and in which case he's back into favour. I mean, it, yeah. it's just his whole brain is completely scrambled at this point. But it's also it's I mean it's very definitely you could you could certainly regard it as fruit of Hitler's man management thing, where everyone's competing totally, yeah, for divide attention. And rule. Yeah, everyone's competing for attention. They're all coming up. They're all they're all imagining what Hitler would yeah. really want them to do, working towards the Führer. So that that's where that gets him. Is he imagines what Hitler really wants him to do is fly fly to Scotland, um, and talk the Brits round. I mean, it's it's you know, it's and, and the thing is. It's completely gaga, but I think—I mean, I think he was lucky to escape the gallows. And that that Spear played this amazing game of giving somehow giving the Allies enough of what they wanted, didn't he? He was very, Mm. very good because first of all, he gets up and he and he doesn't contest. He says, "Yeah, I'm guilty of that," doesn't he? He Mm. he he pleads guilty, but then runs a whole. uh, I didn't know about the slave labour. I didn't know about the Holocaust. You think, well, well, if you investigate him for five minutes. You know, um, uh, how could he? Yes, not, but I think, but there was also, but but there's also sort of politics going on, isn't there? Because oh, yeah, everyone, yeah. everyone knows it's 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 not a kangaroo court, but it's but it's uh, it's a show trial, and they're guilty as sin. You yeah. know, I mean, the point about having a court is to kind of prove whether someone's guilty or innocent, but they're yeah. they're clearly guilty. So it's degrees yeah. of guilt, and 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 I think to kind of give the whole thing a kind of sense of of. Respectability, respectability, mean credibility, and credibility, yeah, yeah. and all that, and that they're arbiters of judgment, and 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 all this kind of stuff. You've got to let a couple of them get off, 
because yeah, that's right. And so, uh, and, and, so and he them... seems, and he's an architect, and you know, he didn't actually go and order anyone to their deaths. You know, he well, and he has, them. and he has the, and he has the nous to get up and say, yeah, this was all wrong yeah, and yeah. terrible. Rather than Goering getting up and going, it's a revolution. I don't recognise your court. When you have a revolution, uh, the you know the 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 what everyone else regards as morality has to be overturned and destroyed. Yeah. Right. So so we're revolutionaries, and the and the prob- and he did that because the Soviets had to go. Oh crap! That's our argument. <laughs> you know, the, 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 and and completely wrong. Goering succeeded in wrong footing people with that. So Spear by, by Spear being emollient and saying, yeah, you know. We did terrible things, and I am guilty. They, 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 the court was able. I mean, he was smart enough to see that the court would then have to, yeah, um, uh, g- g- you know, possibly give him clemency. And after all, he was a, you know, you, the, the trials are political. Spears a politician. Spear figures out the political algebra to get himself off, mm. essentially. Yeah. Um, uh, Completely. Whereas Hess is Hess is too thick. To um, right. to do to, to to play that political game, and Goering though, is and Goering is incredibly clever. He has an incredibly yeah. high IQ, but but he's yeah. just he, he knows that there's no chance for him, and so yeah. he just gives it as he sees it. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's just and trying toys to, with um, some of these people. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, he's having his lot. He's having his day in court, basically, isn't he? That's the yeah, um, exactly just, that. Exactly yeah, that. Yeah. Right. But okay, um, so, yeah, don't worry, Howard. We don't we don't think ill of you. We don't think we you're don't think a Hess apologist. Don't worry. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, if you were worried, you might. We might. You wouldn't have given us your name, right? Um, Martin <laughs> Dice says, um, "Hi guys, love your erudite and interesting tangential meanderings through the history of the Second World War. What mm. do you make of the Gurkha rifles during the Burma campaign? I've ha- I have a handed down story from my dad, who's an RAF mobile radar technician. Now that's interesting, isn't it?" Mm. How hairy would that job have been? That, they'd yeah, have been quite, in, quite hairy. So they'd have, they'd have had a truck in the admin box, right? RAF mobile uh, radar. No, they wouldn't have there. No, no, they they don't have them there. They have them. They, they set them up in um, all through through North Bengal at one point. And they're all kind of right. they're in a twenty miles apart. So a daisy chain, little, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So they've got this kind of window. It's 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 the radar is much more important for defence rather than attack. Right. Okay. Okay. So you want to, you want okay. to know that your skies are clear way over everything, but they, I don't think they have them in the admin box. But but so so right. Okay. Oh, I'm, by the I'm way, I'm run... bidding. I'm bidding on a genuine um, fourth Indian division <laughs> battle dress. Are you? Uh, uh, you know what do you call it? Um, air, air tech one. Is it your size? No, that's not important. It's, it's a piece of history. Good, I'll just, just check in on whether you were going to dress up in it. Right, um, nope. I have a, he says, I have a handed down story from my dad. He was an RAF mobile radar technician about their, about Gurkhas placing bets on how long two of their comrades would last in a machine gun position, um, which the Japanese were paying a very unhealthy interest in. And the losers were up next. Could this be true? I mean, that, to be honest, that sounds like soldierly banter. Also, I have heard that Gurkhas could tell a Japanese soldier just by touching the laces on their boots. When the British Army changed their boots, this led to unintentional cookery beheadings. <laughs> Can this possibly be true? Not I possibly. Thought the antiqu- <laughs> <laughs> I thought the antiquated Japanese army used putties. There are loads of stories about Gurkha courage. The volunteers for jumping out of aircraft who were relieved to hear they would have parachutes, for instance. Apocryphal or not, just brilliant. I mean, the Gurkhas, the Gurkhas have lots of stories swirling around them, don't they? Because mm. 
I mean, they're literally soldiers of legend, aren't they? In the way they present themselves as much as anything else. Yeah, I, I did get some... Um, I got some, some Gurkha testimonies when I was doing my book about North Africa or way back when. Yeah. And, um, and I got in touch with, the, you know, the Gurkha Welfare Association, whatever it is, that, that charity that Joanna Lumley is into. And, and, yeah. and, and I knew a lot of people that were uh, served in the Gurkhas. They put me on the right track. It turns out there's these retired sort of British majors and colonels and stuff who... who I think still go on a hike every year up to up to the Himalayas um, yeah. in Nepal and and hand out arms, as in ALMS rather than ALMS. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, and they said, well, look, you know, we're going there. If you know, t- tell us the questions we want to ask. I can think of a few people, and I'll, I'll ask them and, and get the answers. Wow. And you know, it was a rather unsatisfactory um, uh, sort of que- answers to my questionnaire, if I'm honest. But it was a hell of a lot better than nothing. Um, and um, Nina Badader Pun was the guy I kind of uh, I, I ended up writing about in my North Africa book, but it was amazing, you know. So I've, I've only got that voice, but I didn't. But by the time I was doing the album box, it's sort of gone, really. All the, those wartime yeah. ones. All I will say is that I have never met um, a Gurkha officer who hasn't just extolled the virtues of the Gurkhas in the highest possible manner. You know, yep. to a way that is completely unrecognisable to any other serviceman. So you, yep. they don't talk about their own men from kind of Merseyside or from Somerset or from Kent in the same way, or even about Raj Patanas or or Punjabis or or yep. Sikhs or whatever. It's 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 only the Gurkhas that prompt this amount of admiration, and I think I think. As a race, as a as a as a not a race, but as as a as a nation, as a people, nation, yeah, yeah, you know, they they had this built-in culture of military aspiration and, and a profound sense of duty and discipline. Uh, and I think you know one of the things that we've been talking about with the Germans is this idea that they kind of you know during the war they would kind of you know if you told them to go and run across that field they'd run across that field I think Gurkhas is exactly the same in that that they had this incredible kind of sort of discipline this incredible staying power and if you said right set up that Bren gun stay in this pit and whatever happens don't ever leave it they wouldn't you know and that's not the same for a lot of allied and commonwealth troops yeah 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 yeah, yeah. I mean that that I mean when when uh, Gordon Brown decided that the Gurkhas weren't worth a pension, um, uh, I thought that was that was a fascinating um, sort of cultural moment. So you have Joanna Lumley come forward, whose father, after all, was a Gurkha officer, and and you you know you read the things she she talks about the Gurkhas the way you've said that officers do. She must have got mm. from her father. Yeah, is that the, the position that Gur- the Gurkha soldiers have in the British public imagination and discourse means that to be honest. It, Gordon Brown couldn't have got that. He couldn't have got that more wrong. He couldn't have picked a worse. <laughs> I mean, in a way, you know, politicians, politicians. You can often judge politicians by the people they people they treat as enemies or or they or they take on as opponents, and uh, and that showed what lousy lousy fucking judgment he had. Really, I mean, it's unbelievable. Well, well yeah, you yeah. Know, but do, do you know what? I mean, I remember I remember having conversations with various politicians at various times, including Michael Gove at one point, saying, "Why don't you get a historian to come in once a week?" and address the cabinet for 45 minutes an hour on history, on something that is relevant to what is going on in the world today. Yeah. Why don't you yeah, do yeah, that? Yeah. As that should just yeah. be applied history, part of yeah. their, their oh, well, they're terribly busy and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is really actually quite important. Yeah, because um, you might not and, and make actually, such 
Well, no, and actually, Max Hastings was writing in the Times today saying that 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 time and again he urged politicians to go and you know regularly once a month go and talk to Michael Howard, his great yeah. friend and neighbour, you know, Professor Sir Michael Howard, who we've talked about before. You know, for all his wisdom, and knowledge, and all the rest of it, why don't you just suck that up, suck that in, absorb it, and you know, you might make better decisions. And it's exactly the same. It's just, it's just you know, anyone who's who knows anything about this would know that that was a really really bad idea. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely, and that, that and uh, it was only uh, going to hit you in the face and come back and haunt well, you. Well, but it, but it's, it's like the thing that we uh, will be talking about on Thursday. Yes, that's right. It's like the yes. thing we'll be talking about on Thursday, where you look, where you look at it, and the cheap, the cheapness of the political win involved in involved in the thing we will be talking about on Thursday with Susie Boniface. You look at the you look at the how cheap that will be as a political win win, as a thing for a politician to do, and yet still they resist. Is it's sort of it's kind of mind boggling. Um uh yeah. Anyway, yes, I mean the yeah, I mean the the the, the Gurkha and the the Gurkhas and the cookery, of course. The legend is is once they've drawn it they've got to draw blood. Is that not right? Is that right? Something like that, yeah. I mean it's yeah, I mean, you know, that's impractical, isn't it? I mean, maybe cut an onion with it if you've drawn it accidentally. I don't know. Actually. Or chop up some ca- chop up some carrots. Um, uh, right, another question from Alex. We'll do one more. There you go. You... Oh, for, of course you have. Freaking sharp. Is it sharp? It? Yeah. Is it sharp? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But you've drawn it now, Jim. You're going to have to behead one of your neighbours. <laughs> I've just behead one of the guinea fowl instead. There you go. Crawl, crawl on your belly, commando style, through the crest field. Creep up, creep up on someone. I'll tell you the, the thing about the beheadings is they they definitely did go and behead people in the middle of the night. Um, they definitely yeah. did go and do that. They definitely beheaded Japanese people, and they definitely did it with Falsham Jaeger on Monte Cassino. Because do, do you remember I was telling you about about um, back in the day when I um, when it was 2004 when I I was with those veterans, German veterans on Monte Cassino for the anniversary. Yeah, yeah. They talked about that both of them, Rudy and um, uh, um, um, uh, and Hans Kumberg. They both talked about this. Fear of yep. Gurkhas coming in in the middle of the night to their foxhole, and that's why they couldn't sleep. And you know, everyone was so nervous about it. And they, really? and they, and they both said, "Yeah," and it, and it happened. Well, the thing is, it doesn't need to have happened, does it? No, that's exactly. It what may, I was and say. it may, ne- it may never ever have happened. But the, no. as long as they, as long as they had the willies up them, and the, and the, and surely, <laughs> and surely that's a thing. Someone shouting. From the other, you know, from from the other from the other lines, going the Gurkhas are coming in the middle of the night, mate, like that, you know, and the and the so the the English speaking Lancer goes, oh my god, the, or the Fashy makers, oh my god, the Gurkhas are coming in the night, and that's you know that's all that needs to happen. Uh, yeah, to, to, and, and that to, was to, part. Of, that was also part of the whole retraining process before the beginning of 1944. That latter half of 1943, when Slim takes over a 14th Army, part yeah. of it is this training. And 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 rather than seeing the end, the jungle as your enemy, seeing as the jungle as your friend. And well, once or, you, once you, and once you, once just neutral. Yeah. Yes, but you're, you're using it to your advantage. To, yeah. you, instead of sitting there, kind of anxious, anxiously, kind of you know, crapping yourself about every kind of snap twig, go and snap the twigs yourself and go out there, yeah, yeah. use yeah. the jungle, use the opportunities for camouflage, sneak up on people, do aggressive patrolling because that will give you confidence, it will undermine the enemy, it will make you kind of stronger. Yeah. And that's what the Gurkhas are really good at. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just by rep- just by, rep- by reputation alone, that's good enough too. Um, yes, I've right, got an amazing okay. photograph of some Gurkhas with manning a Bren gun, gun in some bamboo, and you literally can't see them. Really? So I, will post, I will post up tomorrow. 
Please do. Right, okay. One last... Should we do one last question? Yeah. Hello, this is from Alex. Hello, gents. Long-time listener and first-time writer. Do you think Churchill made a serious error in allowing the forced repatriation of Cossacks, including civilians, to the Red Army in May 1945? Granted, some of those turned over to the Soviets were guilty of fighting, fighting for the Nazis... And I don't think the British were in the best position to outright refuse Stalin's demand to hand them over. But in my opinion, he and other British commanders could have put up a stronger protest or at least refused to hand over the women and children. I think the betrayal of the Cossacks is a stain on Churchill's wartime leadership record. He must have known the fate that awaited them. Love the podcast to keep up the good work. Alex, I mean, it's quite hard to argue with that judgment. But but, but, um, you are also looking at that 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 last the end of the war when the war ends there is very much no appetite for any more aggro um uh on the part of the british i mean after all this is at the same time as as they've done the feasibility on unthinkable where they're thinking oh god what if we have to fight the soviets isn't it so so that no wonder they, they, they they're just thinking minimum let's minimize the hassle and unfortunately the cossacks are caught in this and and the Cossacks have had a profoundly, amb- after all, the Cossacks have, have res- were on the white Russian side, resisted the revolution in the first place, or plenty of prominent Cossacks did, enough Cossacks did. And then, uh, and then after Barbarossa, some do fight for the Nazis, for the Germans against Stalin. So there is a, there is a, a, a proper um, chunk of politics involved in this. And after all, you know, that means that they're Britain's enemy as well, these 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 Cossacks, um, aren't they? Uh, if they're fighting Stalin on behalf of the German Germans. So I, I But also I, you, I, I don't you, see you, how he gets out of it, is the is the thing I'm saying. The other thing is 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 Stalin would have said, Oh, we'll just put them in prison. Yeah. Uh, yeah and yeah, and yeah, of course yeah. of course Churchill's gonna say you and I both know that you're just going to execute these people and they're going to disappear and you'll never hear them ever, ever again. Yeah. But he can't say, I'm not handing them over because I don't think your treatment of prisoners is fair. How, how can he say... He can't, Churchill can't say that. No, no. You know, I think you're, you're a brute and, and you were my friend once, but now you're now, now you know, post-war, you can forget it. Yeah. You know, don't forget yeah. he isn't at that point. At the point that he's handing them over, it's it's... Before he's been thrown out, he's no longer prime minister. It's before Potsdam. Yep. They're still an ally. Yep. And your ally yep. says, "Hand over those guys. They're prisoners of war. We'll deal with they them." Because they were fighting. They were fighting against. They were fighting against, against us. Us for for our mutual enemy. <laughs> and on top of that, there's a number in the as we've told. There's some twenty seven thousand British troops in yep. Soviet hands. Which yeah, you know, you won't see them again for sure if you don't. Do yeah. what Stalin asks. You know, is is are a, are a handful of Cossacks worth more than British allied allied prisoners of war? Well, that's that's a difficult sell politi- politically at home, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. So I mean, an impossible I, I, sell at home politically. I, I think I, I'm afraid. I think that is just one of the kind of awful, ghastly kind of byproducts of the war. And there's that grim, there's that grim Cossack quote: "The NKVD or the Gestapo would have slain us with truncheons. The British did it with their word of honour." Oh, perfidious Albion. Oh. Well, well, no, except that we never said, oh, right, we're going to look after you and make sure you're OK, are we? Did we? I don't think we ever said that. I don't think we did. I think they were they were prisoners of war. Um, so I don't I think mean, we're, after all the, I don't think we're particularly a... perfidious on that one. No, but but it sounds it sounds perfidious, doesn't it? Because does, he's right there. The, the NKVD or the Gestapo would have just killed them. 
<laughs> we we handed people over. I mean, the, the, I mean, the Americans did too. Is the, is the thing is that Cossacks Cossacks all over in in Allied hands were were, were repatriated, and then and then of course they were gulagged. Um, uh, the office, I think the officers all met a, a grisly end, but most of them were gulagged, and then they were, uh, Khrushchev started letting Cossacks out. Um, uh, eventually, there were also the, lots and lots of Soviet POWs who, who ended up back in the. Back in Soviet Union were then gulagged. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So well, it's not yeah, just the Cossacks who got the. Well, no, because if you'd sur- well, because if you'd surrendered, um, there was yeah. something fishy about you, wasn't there? In the in the Stalinist mindset, wasn't there? Completely, yeah. Um, so I mean, I, yeah. I just, I just, I think it's completely and utterly politically out of Churchill's hands. I don't see that he could have done anything else. I really don't. It's grim. It's it's not very. It's not pleasant at all. But I I think it's hard to be harsh on Churchill on this yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You can criticise them in lots of other things, but okay. not this one. Right, well, there we go. I mean, there were Cossacks in Normandy, weren't there? Right yeah, and actually, I've, I've got a... I've, I mean, and, and some prisoners did end up in, in in America and never came back again. I mean, yeah. I've, I've got a photograph of an Azerbaijani in Soviet uniform captured in Normandy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean the other thing is is the other thing is is um, let's say you're uh, a processing officer for the British Army, right? And you've got your clipboard and you're looking for the Cossacks in the prison of war camp, and you go up to someone and say, "I say, oh boy, are you a Cossack? Because we're going to have to repatriate." You say, "No, mate, I'm a Turk many. Uh, there's absolutely no way I'm a Cossack." Or, "No, mate, I'm from Ukraine." Or, being no, a Cossack, mate, he'd go. Being a Cossack, he'd go. Of course, I'm not, you bloody fool. Well, exactly. Or you say you're Polish. Or speaking or French. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and then so you don't you. So you then don't end up on the list of Cossacks, do you? You know, I right. mean, it. Uh, anyway, or you say Lithuanian or something. You, you, you know what I mean? So, um, yes, I mean, it's the thing is, is that there, there are so many DPs. There's so many displaced people at the end of the Second World War anyway. Millions. And everyone's in millions, millions. I mean, tens of millions. And you've got, after all, Stalin at this time is moving Eastern Poles into Western Poland, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He's shifting, he's basically shifting Poland left across the map into yep. Germany in order to, in order to kill Prussia, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, and, and reduce Prussia to, to the Brandenburg rump, which is what it is now. Yep. Right? He's doing that. He, he, he don't, he don't care. And, and, and what's, I mean, what's, of course, the irony of that, um, all that happening is the Second World War, uh, uh, Hitler arguably ostensibly starts the Second World War in order to redraw the boundaries of Europe to reassert German uh, populations under German rule. And at the end of the war... And improve Stalin the moved... state of Prussia. Exactly. And, and, the, and at the end of the war, Stalin just moves a load of Germans to where, they don't, where they're not from and kicks out a load of other people, a load of Poles and Germans, and, and no one bats a fucking eyelid. Everyone goes, well, that's fine. To be honest, self-determination peoples, whatever. You know, we're not, we're not going to get tangled up in that one again because look at the trouble it causes. So, I mean, you know, the Cossacks are... I mean, we are, we are looking at millions and millions of people and millions of people fleeing the Russians after all. I mean, the, the great migrations um, uh, uh, west during the Russian advance and, you know, armies trying to trying to uh, German armies trying to head west to surrender to the British and the Americans I mean it's all it's all going off isn't it yeah but but also don't 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 anyone be under any um sort of misillusion that um you know we went to war uh, in 1939 to save the Poles we went no. to war because we were worried about our own sovereignty and our own threat to our own interests and our own people yeah. I mean that's yeah 
you know, it's, he- it's bigger European- picture stuff, but 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 it's European hegemony, right? Um, you know, everyone's run out of steam by 1945, of course, and there is still, as we know, that thorny issue of the of what to do in the Far East and the Pacific. But you know, ultimately, Churchill is making decisions about what is best for British people and and, yeah. and, and Britain. Yeah. yeah. Well, there it is. There it there is. It is. What's, best, that... what's best for Britain and British people? Sovereignty. There's sovereignty. Because <laughs> without, without sovereignty, where are we? No Cossack is better than a bad Cossack. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, I think we've covered all our ground. Yeah. Um, thanks very much we, we for We were listening. dangerously close to getting into a conversation about sovereignty. Yeah, we... Here we were, yeah. Thanks everyone Stop. for listening. We have a we have a fascinating podcast for you on Thursday that we hope you enjoy. That isn't about the Second World War, but is nevertheless it's sort of related to. Well, it's born of it, um, uh, and That's very sure. yeah re- relates very 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 closely to it actually. Anyway, thank you for listening. We will see you all soon. Cheerio. Cheers.